Hello, everyone. I'm Esther Panslow, Head of Partnerships, Policy, and Communications at the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Welcome to Season 3 of Capital Musings, UNCDF's podcast, where we focus on fresh ideas and new innovations that serve our mandate to make finance work for the poor in the world's least developed countries. You can find our Capital Musings podcast on Apple, Spotify, or our website, www.uncdf.org. The theme of season three is the road to Doha. We will be exploring issues relevant to the LDCs ahead of the fifth UN conference on the least developed countries in Doha, Qatar in 2022. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Ambassador Bob Ray, the permanent representative of Canada to the United Nations. Ambassador Ray took up his post in August, 2020, and before that had a very distinguished career in government and politics, including serving as Premier of Ontario, Interim Leader of the Liberal Party of Canada, Federal and Provincial Parliamentarian, Canada's Special Envoy on Humanitarian and Refugee Issues, and Special Envoy to Myanmar. A lawyer by training, Ambassador Ray has focused on social justice in his work with Indigenous communities, as well as on education, governance, and human rights. Ambassador Ray is a Privy Councillor, a Companion of the Order of Canada, a member of the Order of Ontario, and has numerous awards and honorary degrees from institutions in Canada and around the world. Ambassador, thank you very much for joining us today. Lovely to be with you. I'm delighted to be here. Please tell us about your background. Where are you from? What did you study? And what led you to public service? Well, I guess when talking about my background, you should probably know that my father was a diplomat. I grew up around the world. And uh, I think that influenced my eventual path, although it's taken me a while to get to where I am now. It's been a long and winding road, to borrow a phrase from the Beatles. I studied at the International School in Geneva and then went to university in Canada and in the UK. I studied history, political philosophy, and law. And uh, almost as soon as I completed my studies, I became a member of parliament. I ran for parliament when I was in my late 20s, and that really began my political career, which had its gaps. I was a lawyer in between assignments. I was a lawyer in private practice in Toronto, but my practice focused heavily on large-scale negotiations on human rights issues. I did a couple of special reports for the government of Ontario, the government of Canada, and then my last round, I did a lot of work on Indigenous issues. So I've had a great career. I've had a wonderful experience of life globally and nationally and provincially, locally in Ontario. And now I'm delighted to be here at the UN. Thank you, sir. That's a fantastic start and introduction to our listeners of how you got to the beginning of your very distinguished career. So you ran for office in your late 20s, and then you were eventually elected 11 times to parliament at both the federal and provincial levels. And you also led one of Canada's main political parties. What made you as a young person decide to run for office? I think I was obviously called for public service. I was very much influenced by my parents. My father and mother are gone now, but they were very committed public servants of a generation that grew up in the years between the First and Second World Wars. They did not come from great wealth, but they were strongly committed to public service. And I think when I came back to Canada, finally decided that was where I was going to start and where I wanted to live at the beginning, I had always been interested in politics as opposed to working in government per se. I guess it was a bit of a, I would say a minor rebellion, I guess you could say, against some of my background. And it took me into the political field, initially as leader 
as a member of the Social Democratic Party in Canada, uh, where I was elected three times. And then I became provincial leader of the same party. And that's what led to my becoming Premier of Ontario in 1990, over 30 years now. And I think one thing that maybe young people who are skeptical of the political process don't realize is that the art of legislation and the art of governing is actually quite complex and sophisticated. So what are some of the lessons you learned from the experience of governing, from actually being elected, standing for office, and then serving in parliament that you wish young people would know or appreciate? I think it's no big surprise that this is sort of life's lessons, right? I mean, as you get older, you you learn that it's not just about protesting. It's also about getting things done and how do you get things done. Protest has, don't get me wrong, protest is an invaluable part of the political process. Without it, I think the, the process itself would not feel inclined to change. I'm a big believer in the importance of dissent and listening to dissenting voices because often those voices are prophetic and have something to tell us and teach us. But there's also something important about learning that you've got to get things done and getting things done, passing laws, putting things in legislation, making them actually happen is more about building and building up. And that requires some different skills, some different talents than only the talents of protest. Protest can take you so far, but it can't get you over the finish line in terms of actually getting things done. So that requires listening. That requires uh, a willingness to engage with people you don't uh, either like or agree with. Sometimes you have to make compromises with them in order to get things done and in order to get things moving. And I appreciated the opportunities to listen and learn. And, and I think also my work as a lawyer, I think law forces you to bargain and negotiate with others. It, it forces you to get into the details of things, into the nitty gritty of what's really happening, as opposed to just looking at life as a series of broad brushes where you write and speculate and think about things, but you don't actually get anything done. I think that was my motivation for wanting to be a lawyer and for wanting to engage in the political process it has carried me through to my work today at the UN. And this approach that you're talking about, sir, this willingness to consider different points of view, a willingness to really go deep into the substance matter of an issue, a willingness to engage and build relationships and build trust and work with people from many different viewpoints. It seems, at least in the United States, but in many countries around the world, that that space for reasoned political debate and principled disagreements seems to be shrinking in the public sphere as people move to very polarized and different points of view. Are you seeing that in Canada and are you seeing that in your work at the United Nations? I think the short answer to that excellent question would be yes, to some extent, though not to the same extent in Canada. I think in Canada, we have the Liberal Party, which is now the party in government, is pretty broad-based. It's known for its pragmatism and for its willingness to move and, and listen and adopt to different positions of different parties, sometimes to the, those parties' annoyance. But I think it's been one of the keys to its long-term success. But I still think that we do see in Canada a tendency towards becoming less functional, less positive as a place where business actually gets done. And I think that's a problem. I think it's a growing problem. I actually wrote about it in my last book in 2015 called What's Happened to Politics. It's really a description of a bit of that process of deterioration. And as for the UN, yes, I do see it. I see a lot of speechifying. I see a lot of people talking past each other. 
I see an unwillingness to really engage where there are differences. And frankly, I see that on all sides. I see uh, real challenges in getting us to a better place and getting us beyond simply expressing differences. A lot of speeches at the UN seem to be, uh, well, we don't agree with you. This is what we think. And nobody really sticking around to listen to what anybody else thinks. That's not a sign of health in the world today. It's a sign of dysfunction and something we all have to work against. I think we have to figure out how to engage more successfully with others and how to learn the art of dialogue and the art of compromise, which is frequently very difficult. And how much did the pandemic restrictions affect your work? Because diplomacy is so much about building relationships and trust and spending time together in rooms and side conversations and going into the hallway. So what impact did the limitations on movement have on your work and on the ability of diplomats at the United Nations to do their jobs? I think the technology has affected us in a number of ways. First of all, for me, I came here in the middle of COVID. So the world of Zoom and listening to, watching people on the screen and listening to people and people making speeches on the screen initially was the world that I was introduced to. There were very few in-person meetings. The General Assembly met in person, but only with one delegate, which meant you were there on your own. So you were making a speech and then listening a bit and then leaving. So there wasn't a whole lot of dialogue. I think that as a practical matter, the work of committees on Zoom made negotiation difficult. It made finding compromise on language difficult. I think in a practical sense, I think it was harder to do our job. Uh, A number of my staff complained about that and said it really is difficult doing it. The one positive thing I would say is that the existence of social media for me and a couple of the friends groups, I was chair of the Peace Building Commission, for example, we took the Peace Building Commission into places it would not otherwise have been able to go. We increased the presence and the participation of NGOs, civil society organizations in countries in conflict. We had more women appearing than ever before. We had more young people appearing than ever before. And that was good. I think it's very healthy to to engage civil society as much as we can in the work of the UN. I always point out to people that at the beginning, the UN was very much affected by the presence of a number of organizations and civil society groups that impacted the wording of the charter itself. And I don't think we would have seen as strong wording as we see in the Charter on issues like human rights and gender equality and the rule of law, which were very much part of what was in the air in San Francisco in 1945. And I think that's a positive thing. And I think some member states don't like that because they come from a context where the state governs everything and where they don't have to listen to civil society as much as those of us who live in more democratic countries like to do. So in a sense, the presence of civil society on Zoom has been very positive. On the other hand, I think the fact that we haven't been able to meet in person as much as we all would have liked to has not been a plus. And I think that's something we're now beginning to overcome in New York and in Geneva, but not as much as I think most of us would like. Thanks, sir, for pointing out that the technology does make meetings much more inclusive. We've seen how having meetings recorded or on Zoom make it possible for many 
more people and also a different range of people, wider range, as you mentioned, to attend certainly uh, UN meetings that we've been part of, but also for pointing out that there is quite a different perspective about the role of civil society between, say, a Canada and other countries at the United Nations. So we know that's a challenge and we appreciate your advocacy for more openness and inclusiveness. So could you please tell us, sir, what are some of Canada's key priorities at the United Nations? Well, the first one, I think, is the health of the organization itself. I mean, the health of the UN has been a major preoccupation of Canada for many years. From the beginning, we were active and present at the creation. We have always looked to the UN as a place where conflict could be averted, where uh, diplomacy should be given a real chance to work. And later on in the life of the organization, where we could bridge gaps, not only between East and West, between communist countries and the non-communist countries, which was the conflict that became clear after 1945, but also to look at ways of bridging gaps between rich and poor, the creation of a number of UN agencies, which have assisted in development, the excitement of what's happened in the post-colonial era and how we've created a new global governance system that I think is not huge potential if we can only put it to work. So that priority remains for us a, a key. We are active participants. We're ready, I ready. When the UN looks for volunteers to do something, we're volunteers. They look to people who will help to chair and facilitate and get the solutions. We're, we're there and we're ready to participate fully and wholly in the work of the organization. I would say that the question of COVID remains very important for us because it's been such a huge revealer of the problems in the world. We are not yet anywhere close to the end of the uh, pandemic. There are issues around access to uh, vaccines and, and access to what needs to happen to make things better. Climate change, obviously, are, we continue to lead. The prime minister played a very active role at COP26. Conflict prevention, conflict resolution, these are critical issues for us. And now some new issues like the digital divide. How do we deal with this next industrial revolution that we're in the middle of? How do we make sure that it isn't simply a disruptor, but it's also something that can produce something more positive, as well as deal with the risks of it in terms of the impact of social media, cybercrime, the way in which cyber criminality can affect us? These are all examples of how we really don't see an alternative to playing a positive role in a global organization. There's never been any question of Canada's commitment to responding positively to the challenges facing the world. We, we are ready to take up our part in the world's struggles. That's been true of us for a long time, and it's just as true today. Thank you very much. And speaking of taking on priorities and responsibilities at the United Nations, Canada is one of the facilitators of the LDC-5 process. Please tell us what that means. Well, coming out of the period of decolonization, it became clear that there are a number of countries that achieved independence that were still in a state of deep poverty. And going back to now many years now, over 40 years, the UN and the international system have recognized that there is a group of countries that are less developed than anyone else, that have the lowest standard of living, continue to suffer from real challenges in terms of governance and, and education and just critical parts of the infrastructure of leading a country to a higher standard of development. And they're They've created a set of policies and approaches in the UN system, again, UNDP, UNICEF, all of the agencies of the United Nations, as well as the positions taken by the governance institutions, the donor countries that have contributed to international assistance, to try to bring some coherence to all of our efforts. 
to bring countries out of poverty. We still have this phenomenon of what's been called the lowest billion, the, the number of people who are on the very lowest rung of the ladder. And I think really what we're trying to do in this LDC-5 is, again, begin to address the key challenges, look at ways in which we can make more progress. It has been frustrating. We do see some countries graduating from those who are least developed, but it's not a condition that is universally shared. And there still are some countries that are deep in poverty and all of the challenges of human development that are associated with that. And what would Canada like to see coming out of the LDC-5 process? Uh, that's question one. And question two is, what do you think is possible to achieve in this negotiation? Well, I think, I mean, the first one is, in a sense, a way to answer both questions together. I mean, I think Canada's view about all these issues always is that it's important for us to be practical. How can we actually make progress? What does it take? Well, I think it takes two things. One is I think it takes a, an ongoing, continuing commitment by the UN system, as well as by donor countries, the wealthier countries, to take the position and the situation of the least well-off countries more seriously to understand that there's nothing to be gained from their continued marginalization and from the deep poverty of the people who, who live in those countries. And the second is to look at what are the steps that can be taken by those countries themselves to improve their overall capacity for greater development. And that I think is often a tough question. And you know, it'll come as no surprise, this is often two sides talking past each other one group on the wealthier side, people say, well, you've got to govern yourselves better. You've got to be less corruption. We need more good government and more of the commitment to the rule of law. Then on the other side, people say, yeah, but you know, we don't have any of the instruments that will allow us to get to where we want to get to. We still suffer from huge discrimination. We're not getting vaccines. We're being asked to bear the burden of climate change, but we're not being given any of the money that will allow us to protect ourselves from the impact of it. And I think one of my jobs as the co-chair, together with Rabab Fatima, who's the ambassador of Bangladesh, is to say, well, let's figure out a way of listening to each other. There's truth on both sides. Let's see if we can't find a better way to address these issues. And I think that's really what we're trying to do. And that's what I hope we'll see some signs of progress when we come out of the Doha conference, which is happening at the end of January. Thank you, sir. We will be rooting for you in that diplomatic challenge, as UNCDF is also quite invested in seeing a good and practical and pragmatic outcome to benefit LDCs. So, Ambassador Ray Canada now has a feminist foreign policy. Can you give us some examples of what that means in practice? Yeah, I'm very proud of it. I think what it represents is it's a recognition by our government that the inequality between women and men that still persists in a number of countries, a number of places, a number of societies is not acceptable. First of all, it exists in Canada. So our prime minister has said, in my cabinet, there will be complete equality between women and men. Our minister of finance is a woman. Our minister of national defense is a woman. Minister of foreign affairs is a woman. So we have three very, very senior ministers in government who are, for the first time, all women and leading the way in terms of changing the ideas in people's heads around, well, what does this women's equality mean? The first thing we have to do is demonstrate we can do it at home. And then it's to really talk to, engage with other countries on ensuring that there is real equality between women and men in access to education, for starters, because that's where inequality is really grows. I can remember talking to my own grandmother, who was from Scotland, where she was telling me, you know, when I was a little girl, 
my father made it clear that I was expected to leave school at 12. And so I had to leave school at 12. And my brothers got to go on. I didn't get to go on. And she resented that for her whole life. Didn't hold her back. She became extremely literate. She read widely. But she always suffered from a sense that she didn't have an equal opportunity and didn't have the chance to move forward. My mother was the first woman in her family to go to university. And that made a big difference in her life and in our lives as, as children. And so our, her grandchildren, my three daughters, accept entirely the fact that they're going to be able to do whatever they want to do, whenever and however they want to do it. They take that as a working assumption. We don't want to impose our way of life on other countries, but we do want to show, demonstrate in, in our foreign assistance programs, but also in our work we do, for example, in peacekeeping, we're insisting that women can take any role within peacekeeping and within peace building. We have a special program on women, peace, and security, where we look hard at how we can make more progress. We're looking now at our development programs around women in business, women in entrepreneurship, women in creating wealth. All these are huge opportunities for women that make a huge difference in the life of countries. And frankly, we really believe that until the world is truly free and equal, we're not there yet. We're, this is a work in progress. So I think the fact that the government has said we're a feminist government, we believe in feminism and equality between women and men in our own country, and frankly, we believe in it as a basic human right around the world, and we're going to conduct ourselves accordingly. We've been joined in that regard by a number of other countries. Sweden, for example, now has the very forthright way to put forward its feminist foreign policy, and I think it's beginning to make a difference as countries begin to understand that when Canada or Sweden or other countries come and talk to them about the economy, about how life is changing, we come at it from a perspective where we say we're really interested in seeing how can we empower women to achieve greater equality in the societies in which they're living. And for some political regimes, it's a challenge. They don't particularly welcome that message. But frankly, that's our message. And so we're going to continue to deliver that message and work with many countries, many of which are willing to engage in that discussion and have accepted and embraced uh, equality. As, for example, it, it says in the Charter, the Charter itself, equality between women and men is a foundational principle of the Charter. So we don't see any reason to back off on it. Thank you, sir. Well, we do know that it makes a difference when countries are vocal about their beliefs. And we do know as a development agency that investing in women, especially in poor countries, has outsized development impacts and produces benefits that are quite notable. So we appreciate that focus from Canada. What would you say are some of the main differences between serving as a permanent representative in New York and the previous leadership posts that you've had back in Canada? Well, there are good things and not so great things. I mean, the good thing is, the good thing is, it's a truly multinational, multicultural, multiracial, and that is quite wonderful. The General Assembly, in our opening day, when all the delegates are there and all the representatives are there, is a sight to behold. Here's the world. It's here and it's all of its diversity and all of its tensions, but also a lot of its positivity is, is present in the room. And that is something which continues to inspire me. You know, I just feel when I walk into the building and I walk into the UN, I continue to feel a sense of inspiration in terms of what its aspiration is and, and how it works. And it's, it's quite wonderful. I think we are also able to do some good things on the margins of what we do. I have to say our, many of our debates are frustrating. 
this set of rhetoric and propaganda and people talking past each other can be very, very frustrating. And frankly, we're all guilty of it. Nobody can say, oh, I never do that. We all read statements from Capitol that are written by some official in Capitol who's simply trying to defend whatever it is we've been doing. It's not necessarily based on a real process of engaging with others on a never-ending, continuing basis. And that, I think, is what sometimes gives you know UN debates their bad reputation. But there are moments of light. And I always quote uh, the Canadian poet and singer uh, Leonard Cohen, who said, there are no perfect offerings. There's a crack in everything. And that's where the light gets in. So where we see little cracks of light, that's where we take hope. And that's where we take inspiration. I continue to think that having an organization like this, which represents all the world, takes us out of ourselves. For PRs like myself, it forces me to use whatever talents I've developed over many years and perspectives over many years, but it also forces me to listen and to learn and to understand that where I was when I started is not where I'll be at the end of my term. I think I'll be, hopefully, I'll be wiser and able to understand the world even better than I did when I first came here. Thank you. What a wonderful goal. And what would you say you're enjoying most about the job? I enjoy the ability to occasionally actually make a difference, both in terms of what I say at the UN, but also on the Peace Building Commission, for example, the the chance to really try and engage with a number of actors who are in the field and give them some sense that their voices are being heard, that they're being listened to, that they're making a difference. Had some feedback to that effect that makes a great difference. It makes a difference for me as well to learn from others, to see the courage of my colleagues from Myanmar and Afghanistan who are going through a really tough situation in their home countries and are continuing to express their points of view with integrity. That's ennobling for me to have been able to be present in the debate when the ambassador for Myanmar made it clear that he did not agree with what his government was doing, that there had been a coup and he didn't share the view of the military who'd taken over his country. And to see him speaking on the floor of the General Assembly with such courage and such dedication was a truly wonderful moment for me. And I was proud to have been able to be in that debate. Thank you. That was a very powerful moment. So as we look to wrap up, sir, if you had the ability to choose with no limit something to be achieved during your time at the United Nations, what would it be? Oh, gosh, if you say, what would it be? It would be a world peace with an effective enforcement mechanism. We still don't have an effective way of enforcing the will of the majority of the nations that are here to achieve ceasefires and peace where they need to happen. And I think that ongoing sense of the conflicts that are just enduring and we're not able to stop them or prevent them, I think is, means that the objectives that were set out in the charter and that were set out by those who were emerging from the ruins of World War II, we have not yet begun to build the walls and, and the ceiling and the floor of the new architecture of the future. So we still have a long ways to go. But if we can build a few bricks during my time here, that's good. Thank you very much. So thank you, Ambassador Ray, for joining us today to share your fascinating experience and insights for your long record of public service and for the excellent work of your entire team in the LDC5 process and across all of their work at the United Nations. Well, thank, thank you very much. I'll share that with my team. I think they'll be thrilled to hear that. Thank you. And thank you to our audience for joining us on UNCDF's podcast, Capital Musings. Once again, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, and our website, www.uncdf.org. 
If you found this episode useful, please spread the word on Twitter, hashtag Capital Musings, or leave us a review on iTunes. Reviews help new listeners discover our podcast. So if you enjoyed listening, please leave a review. Thanks, and until next time.